Welcome to What Happened to You, the podcast that interviews footballers of the past today about their interviews from the past. Don't worry, it will all make sense when you listen. On this episode, supported by the set pieces, we talk to former Dundee United, Aston Villa, Wolves, Everton, West Brom, Rangers, Cheltenham Town and Scotland striker Andy Gray about his focus on and super focus interviews for Shoot Magazine from around 1977-78 and his star spot profile from Match Magazine in 1984. You can find the original interviews on our Twitter feed at WHTYPod and on our dedicated channel over at The Set Pieces, www.thesetpieces.com. Full name? Andrew Mullen Gray. Birthplace and date? Birthplace, Drumchapel, Glasgow on the 30th of November 1955, which was, which is St. Andrew's Day. Uh, height? 5 foot 11. Uh, and do you still weigh 11 stone 5 pounds? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, oh, I wish, I wish. <laughs> uh, well, Andy, welcome to what happened to you. How's life? Life's good, getting ready for the, the new season to start. It's obviously a bit like everyone in the world at the moment. We're all kind of in a strange place. Um, but hopefully, as the year goes on and we move through it, things will get better and we'll get back to some sort of normality. But uh, yeah, okay. Well, we've dug up three different interviews of yours from Shoot and Match magazines to discuss today. Uh, so let's pick out some of the real gems, starting with the person that you named as the biggest influence on your career, former Dundee United manager, Jim, Jim McLean. You could dedicate an entire podcast just to Jim. Um, he was, certainly was a character, but he was extremely successful and effective with it. How did he help you? Yeah. He devoted an awful lot of his own personal time to me. He, I think he, he saw something in me that he liked. And when all the other lads were, and I was, what, 17 at the time, when all the other lads were finishing training and nipping down the snooker hall or nipping to the pub for lunch, um, Jim was saying to me, right, I'll see you back here at two o'clock, Andy. And I'd be going, oh, why me, boss? What are you doing with me? Why can I not just go with the lads? Of course, that kind of one-to-one coaching is you just it's invaluable back then. But he used to take me out in a ton of dice main pitch day in, day out. Certainly in a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday more regularly than not and, and work with me one-to-one on my movement, my timing, everything like that, my finishing. So um, he worked with me there technically, but he also, I mean, I, was, I, I didn't like losing anyway. I knew that as a kid, but Jim didn't like losing. He hated losing as well. So we had an affinity there as well. Uh, and, and that, you know, his demands were, were huge. He demanded the very, very best that you could give him. And if you didn't give him, then God help you. Um, and I, I tried to do that with him. Uh, and for two years, um, he, he was amazing for me. They always say your formative years are the most important ones. What you get taught at an early age are things that will stay with you the rest of your career. And, and because Jim was brilliant with me, um, that was the bedrock for me for, to go on and do what I did, I think. Pretty decent career, thanks to Jim. 
Well, you scored a ton of goals for Dundee United, which led to your move south to Aston Villa, which is where we came across you first in these old shoot interviews. Um, you carried on scoring, um, which helped the young up-and-coming Villa side push for honours. Indeed, in 1977, you not only won the League Cup, but you also completed a personal double of the PFA Player of the Year and Young Player of the Year awards, a feat that's only ever been matched since by Gareth Bale and Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, how would you think you company. would? Yeah, how would you have fancied the move to Real Madrid, just like them? <laughs> well, back then, you'd never think about these things. Um, you know that the, the place to play was England. If you were a Scot, um, there wasn't sort of the money flying around then uh, that there is now. Um, you know, I, I my ambition was to play the highest level I could in England and for my country. So I never thought about leaving. Never entered my head that uh, I would. I would. Well, went a couple of times it probably did, but not seriously. I, I always felt my career would be in England. But no, it was. It's nice to be in such company. Uh, those guys were are playing and have played at a very wonderful time for certain things in football. Um, but I, I, I said to somebody the other day that would I swap my playing of the era I played in, and this is not the financial rewards, I'm talking about playing and how the game was played and how we went about it. Would I swap that for the way they play the game now? No, I would I would definitely not. Well, you were asked in all of these interviews who were your favourite players and your admiration for other forwards is pretty clear because you chose Gerd Muller, Kenny Dalglish, Dennis Law and Malcolm McDonald, um, all get a mention. <laughs> and if yeah. I had to push you to pick one of those to play alongside to create what you feel might be the perfect partnership, which one would it be? Elglish, yeah, without fear of contradiction. Um, was fortunate enough to play alongside him a couple of times, a few times for Scotland. Um, he was just genius. Genius. Mm -hmm. Totally different from me. He had ability <laughs> and skill and technique. Uh, so we complemented each other pretty well as a duo. So definitely, uh, if mm -hmm. I was looking for the perfect partner, then, then Kenny would fit the bill. Yeah. Well, injuries played a big part in your career, and you mentioned in, in these uh, interviews um, about the, uh, the injuries, firstly, the, the torn knee ligaments in 1978, uh, and then a cartilage operation. Um, how badly did they hamper you during the remain remainder of your playing days? Because Villa sold you on, which would have been a bit of a surprise, I suppose, uh, and you suffered again at, at Wolves before Howard Kendall took what was probably seen as a bit of a gamble on you and your knees uh, when his job was on the line at Everton. Well, there's no doubt, listen, there's no doubt that injuries affected um, certain things in my football career. Um, up until I was, I would probably say 23, I'd had one cartilage operation as a kid at Dundee United and then I damaged my ligaments. But apart from that, I was okay, apart from the niggles and strains that you normally get. But I had, in quick succession, quite a few operations on my, my right knee for cartilage and tidying up jobs. And I ended up in having six ops on my right knee um, in my time at Villa and uh, Wolves. And that takes its toll on, on anyone's knee. And especially in the days when we didn't have keyhole surgery and when they opened your knee up, they opened your knee up. Um, <laughs> there was no medicine. It was, I, I, if you saw my right knee and see the scars on it all around it, you wouldn't believe it, that I played as long as I did. But uh, yeah, it, it definitely hindered me. There's no doubt about that. The player I was at, at Dundee United and Villa um, changed a little. 
during Wolves and certainly at Everton. But I had to find a way of <clears throat> staying effective. And, and I think I did that. Well, those injuries would have given you plenty of time off the pitch to enjoy life. So let's take a look at a few of the non-football related questions that were thrown at you in these interviews. <laughs> Firstly, let's look at your car progression. So we've gone, we started with the Ford Capri GT, going to an Escort yeah. RS 2000 at Villa, um, and then uh, a BMW 323i at Everton. So there's not a mini metro in sight there. Were you a bit of a boy racer? No, no. I, I mean, I, I, I liked a nice car, and um, you know, the the RS two thousand, the Ford RS two thousand, I had at Villa was a, was like a club car. So you know, I, I didn't have a, much of a choice with that. Um, I did like a BMW. I mean, I, I was never, I was never one of these players who wanted the biggest, best, most powerful car. I liked a nice car, hmm. but it didn't have to be, you know a Ferrari or something like that. I was quite happy with a nice, with a nice car. Um, and it, it never bothered me that much. I mean, I, I grew into like nice cars as I got older, obviously. But no, when I was, when I was young and I was playing, a car was a car. Uh, as long as it was decent, nice, and got me from A to B and, and, and was reliable, I was, I was okay. I, I didn't devote an awful lot of time overly thinking about what kind of car I might like this time around and, and didn't change it very often at all so car, car was was important but not uh, a necessity yeah well your likes and dislikes they stay pretty consistent over the years uh, i don't know whether the, the people who do it, the interview <laughs> me were just let me guess i'm guessing losing is up there high up the list <laughs> well losing uh, golf is in, is one of your likes and dislikes uh well likes of course uh driving uh, and visiting scotland they all get the thumbs up while um smoking and gardening were on your blacklist um You've also picked mm. out Sweden as the best country you've ever visited. So has many of those things changed much down the years? Well, I, I, I mean, obviously, I picked Sweden when I was about 19 and had hardly been anywhere in the world. Sweden <laughs> is a beautiful country. and I had a wonderful time there playing in the tournament. But I, I've been to so many places all over the world now, as you can imagine, mm. uh, not only with my football career, but being able to, to, to afford decent holidays through time. So... You know, there are a lot of places like, you know, Barbados, Bermuda, that are, that, that are beautiful. I've been, I was in uh, Sardinia last summer. Um, Gianfranco Zola, a good pal of mine, organised a, a trip to his homeland of Sardinia for me, which was an amazing place. So there are, there are many, many more that come into the frame now, and it would have been a much more difficult decision now than it was back then. Yeah. And do you get back to, uh, to Glasgow much? Not as often as I would like. <clears throat> Obviously, my mother, um, you know, God rest her soul, was the glue that kept the family together pretty much. And she passed away coming up six years ago. So, whereas I used to try and get up and see my mum as often as I could, um, I've only got one brother there who lives there now. So, um, I'm less likely to go. But I, I do like, I've still got pals up there and, and I'm, I'm disappointed that I probably haven't been now up north to Scotland for ooh, what three years so it's something that whenever this pandemic allows me that I, I will rectify immediately and, and go up and see my brother because it's been too long well speaking about friends actually in the latter of these three interviews you're asked who are your best friends um, and the list sounds like you've just made up a load of Glaswegian nicknames on the spot because there's there's Dunks, Rab, 
Smitty, Duke and Alex. Now, I think you were only missing t a Tam and a Tosh for the full house. <laughs> Are they still your mates? Yeah. Well, Dunks is my brother, ah, okay. um, obviously. He's still my pal. Uh, Rab is still very much my pal. I spoke to him yesterday, in fact. We FaceTimed each other yesterday. Uh, Rab is a, a pal of mine who came to England when I did, lived with me, stayed with me for years, married and settled and had a family there and is just about to retire to the Isle of Wight uh, mm. this winter uh, and enjoys retirement. So very much still one of my best pals. Smitty, a guy from who's lived all his life in Glasgow, was at school with him from the age of five. Smitty's still my mate. Uh, Duke and the other lads, less so. They were more my brother's mates. Than, than my mates, but they threatened if I, if I didn't put their names in, they would sort me out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you've, uh, you've also highlighted, as your dislikes actually, uh, poor and inconsistent refereeing. Um, so, <laughs> nothing changes much, eh? Uh, how, changes. how much do you think that, that punditry and, and over-analysis of marginal decisions has influenced the way football matches are handled today? Because, um, what, and do you think that refereeing standards and therefore entertainment value since you played has, has improved? I don't think the entertainment value has improved. Um, I watch 380 Premier League games a year and I can assure you <laughs> more than a lot are very dull, very boring. I do think the game was, and was more exciting in, in our time because it was a little more direct. Um, it's a little more pass-obsessive at the moment uh, for me. Um, so, I, I, you know, I don't think it's more exciting now. It's certainly more glamorous. It's certainly presented in a way that, you know, it's that, that maybe 25 years ago we didn't think possible. Um, is there over-analysis? I think there probably is. And I, I, I speak as a man who probably started <clears throat> the modern-day analysis all those years ago. But I think we can, you, you, can, you can go too much into analysis. Um, the game is still a simple game complicated by coaches uh, and others. So, yeah, I mean, I think the game's in, televisually, I think the game's in probably a good place with the way it's covered. Um, I think the TV companies do a decent job of that. But I do think that, 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 you know, a lot of pundits try and be too clever, too over, too analytical, if you like. Um, and, but that's, that's, that's the way they are, each to their own. Uh, I, just because I do it my way, I did it my way, doesn't mean it's right for everybody. But um, yeah, I think, I think it's, as far as television goes and analysis goes, television-wise, it's in a good place, I think. Coverage is always excellent. Analysts, maybe, maybe just do a little bit too much. Um, you, 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 it's saturation now. I mean, you switch on any sports channel now and someone's analysing this, that and the other. Well, your favourite music, um, well, there's nothing unusual for the times. You've, you've chose Roxy Music, Diana Ross and Rod Stewart. Um, can you even be Scottish if you don't declare your love for Rod? <laughs> well, you can if you're a Rangers fan, because Rod's well, obviously true. a big Celtic fan. You know, so uh, being a Rangers fan, I could probably get away with it. But no, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm always a bit surprised at Diana Ross. I don't know why Diana Ross would have been in there. <laughs> You know, Roxy Music, yeah, I loved the Roxy Music in the 70s. They were, they were amazing. Brian Ferry was sensational. Saw them a few times. Rod was just Rod. I was lucky enough to meet him and have met him on numerous occasions since then. Um, and top, top man. But Di Diana Ross is a, is a strange one for me. <laughs> really strange. Um, I, I, she must have been really 
popular when mm. I did these articles um, for me to mention. I said, listen, was she a talent? Absolutely, a magnificent talent, both the Supremes and individually. So uh, I'm certainly not embarrassed to put her in there, but just a little surprised. Mm. Um, now, you've not owned up to a nickname in any of these interviews, although I have read in one of Peter Reed's similar profiles that you and he were yeah, called... Yeah, but rubbish. Yeah, well, apparently, <laughs> apparently you were called uh, Freddy One and Freddy Two because your Everton teammates thought you both looked like the comedian Freddy Star. Is that true? That is absolutely true. He was Freddy One because he was there before me and I was <laughs> Freddy Two. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there is a, there's a... I mean, that suggests that I look like Peter Reed, which is a horrifying thing for me to have to contemplate. <laughs> Although he's one of my best mates, he'll be gutted about that. But yeah, I think there was a, there's a, there has been over the years, certainly when I was younger, a, a passing resemblance to Freddie remarked on in more than one occasion. And Jim Davidson, I think, to a certain extent, um, in my younger days, uh, when I had hair. So yeah, Freddie 1 and Freddie 2, we were known as. But that, that was it. I was never called that. You know, it was just something that the lads said. But I never had a, you know, I never had a nickname. I was always Andy. Mm. That was that was it, and and I, I don't know why. One of these lucky players who never managed to get himself a nickname. Right back to the football, and in the two late seventies interviews, uh, your professional ambitions were to become a Scotland regular and make Aston Villa the best in Europe. So Villa first, they did become the best in Europe in nineteen eighty two, mm. but of course you'd long since moved on, and you won twenty caps sporadically for Scotland. Admittedly, when the competition for places was really tough, um, we've already mentioned the injuries getting in the way, but. How do you assess those two particular parts of your career, Villa uh, and Scotland? Uh, Villa was uh, disappointing the way it ended. Um, I love that club hugely. Um, but when you fall out with the gaffer, the manager, and you lose respect for him, which I did, um, then I, I, I had to go. And I, I have no... Um, bad feelings towards them and uh, do, do I wish they hadn't won the league in the European Cup? No, I, of course I don't. I, I'm so glad they won it, went on to win it because there's no doubt we contributed or I contributed towards towards that with what I'd done the years before and it led up to that. So uh, it was disappointing the way it happened and I, I would not have forced a move out of Aston Villa had it not been for Ron Saunders. Um, but so be it. It was a decision that I made at the time. I'm sure a lot of people thought, ha, 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 you'd made the wrong decision. Look at you. You're, you're, you're. Especially a couple of years later when Wolves got relegated. Um, but when I look at the career, I would, if I hadn't gone, I wouldn't have made Everton. I wouldn't have those glorious years that we had there, et cetera, et cetera. I might not have got to Rangers, which was always my boyhood dream. So you make decisions in life and they, and they kind of, and the shape, the way your, your life goes professionally. And I made that decision then to get out, to go from Villa because of the coach, quite simply. Hadn't been for Ron Saunders, I would never have left Villa, I don't think, unless they wanted me to go. And at that time, they didn't. So it was down to Ron. My Scotland career is, a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is my one source of disappointment uh, I have in my life. 20 caps for, for what I thought had the ability, 20 plus caps for the ability I thought I had. Is, is scant, I think, I was going to say reward, not reward, but it's, it's, it's a scant amount for me because I thought I was miles better than that. But I did get sent off playing for Scotland when I was 19 uh, and got a ban 
for amount of time as you say there weren't many games but I got banned for I think four competitive World Cup games which spanned nearly two years wow. at a time in my life when I was I was playing some of my best football also at the time in my life where I just just after I'd been voted the best player in England both young and old uh, Ali McLeod in 78 decided in his wisdom um, not to take me to the World Cup so there were a lot of things out my outside my control with regards to my country. Um, but it's a huge source of disappointment that as I sit here, I, 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 I'm the holder of 20 plus caps and not 60 or 70 plus caps. So I'm not ever got to a World Cup. That's my, the one void that I think I have in my football career. There's, mm-hmm. a, there's a gap there. There's a gap there that should and could have been filled. But for various reasons, it, it wasn't. So... I was a little unlucky in my Scotland career, but for my club career, I, I'm going to have to accept that. Um, now, how about superstitions? Do you remember what you said? Superstitions, football superstitions, is I always run out fourth. That's it, yeah. <laughs> Why is that? Don't know. Don't know. Um, I always thought four was a lucky number for me. And, and then when I started at Dundee United, because... I mean, I was captain a few times and it, it threw a spanner in the works at certain clubs, not very often, thankfully. But I always just wanted um, captain, goalie, one other, then me. Mm. And I always made the point of going forth. The only other superstition I had, I remember, in the early days, was I never used to start getting changed into my kit till 2.30. Now, that, that in the modern game, people would be going, What? <laughs> what? You know, 25 minutes before you step into the tunnel, you're still in your suit. I said, yeah, and I used to say, yeah, I'll just read the programme, take it easy. And then 2.30, I'd look at my watch, half past two, let's go, get changed, get on, little warm-up, bang. So that, that was my two footballing superstitions, really, um, at a young age. Yeah. Um, Shoot asked you to pick out your prospects for the future, so let's see how you did on that. At Villa... <laughs> <laughs> Well, you did well at Villa because you chose Gordon Cowens, who, of course, went on to win the league and the European Cup and play for England. Um, and mm-hmm. probably, probably a player who I, I don't think gets as much credit as he deserved for, uh, as compared to some of his contemporaries. Um, and while you were at Everton, you picked a young midfielder called Mickey Fielding. Do you remember Mickey? Yeah, yeah dude. Never quite, never quite got there, yeah. Yeah, he's, a, he's the father of uh, Rocky Fielding, the, the former world champion super middleweight boxer. So, oh, you know, wow. he's, okay, nice. yeah, he's passed some genes on at least. Yeah, yeah, but you're right about Sid Cowens. I mean, had, had, had Gordon was an amazing footballer um, had a, and had suffered a horrendous leg break that, that, that I think hindered him from really being what he should have been. But his talent was, was unquestionable. Sid, he was just a magnificent, best one-touch passer I've ever seen in my life. Mm. It was amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, well, the favourite goal you've scored uh, in the interviews, we've got your second for Scotland against Finland and the winner in the 1980 League Cup final for Wolves, which you've described as the simple, <laughs> you've described it as the simplest ever. Um, any advance on those? One of your famous diving headers, perhaps? No, I mean, you, you score a goal in a, a, like, a, as part of an Everton side and the only European trophy they've ever won. So you're part of Everton history. Um, for such time, well, forever, forever. No one can take that away from us. There can only be one first, and we were that. So to score in that game, the first goal in that game against Rapid Vienna, 
would would have to include it um, in my my list of and not great goals, but important goals. You know, these goals I tell you about are all simplistic. Apart from a Scotland one, which was a pretty good goal, <laughs> uh, are all simplistic in their, their execution because that's the kind of player I was. I wasn't the kind of player who smashed them in from 40 yards alone. I did against Portugal one night at Hamden, and that was a sensational goal. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. Um, but smashed one in there one night. But my, I, th- I think it's important for me. First ever goal I scored was important. You know, the, the, the League Cup final. Always wanted to score at Wembley in a cup final. So the League Cup final was the first. Then the FA Cup final against Watford. So that was even better because the tournament was even more important. Of course, the European final and, and your club. Uh, and the club that won the first European trophy, the only European trophy it's ever won. So all those goals are hugely important. Did I score better goals than those? Yeah, a load better goals than those. Some amazing headers. Two headers I got against Sunderland for Everton are as good as I've scored ever. Ever. Um, and I have them in video, which is good, because I don't have many of my 200-plus on video, which the one thing I am envious about the modern-day player, that is what I hugely am envious about, is that having scored over 200 goals for, for, <clears throat> for club and country, that... I don't know how many I've got. Probably 50 on video, if I'm lucky. Mm. If I'm mm-hmm. lucky. Maybe not even that. Whereas Alan Shearer has probably all of his 286 goals <laughs> mm. <laughs> that he can sit and look at in his own age. And that I do envy the modern player for. Oh, the back pass might come to. Sharp. He's got Andy Gray in there. It's the goal! Well, you mentioned about the 1984 FA Cup final and that the match interview that we're looking at today was from their FA Cup final preview issue. Uh, and of course, you, you went to Everton. Um, Howard Kendall, he really needed leaders in his team then because they were, as a group, they were still pretty young, although with lots of promise, but they were struggling. Um, most people remember that famous League Cup tie at Oxford when, you know, apocryphally, he was perhaps only 10 minutes away from the sack until Adrian Heath scored that uh, goal and earned the replay. And then, of course, it all it all took off from there. And then it led up to that FA Cup final, which, um, you know, you scored, which, of course, it was a perfectly legitimate goal too, wasn't it? No controversy whatsoever. Well, um, Steve Sherwood would argue that, obviously. <laughs> what for there was plenty of controversy and it was a free kick. But no, I never thought it was. I didn't touch him. Um, I might just have nudged it before he got complete control of it in his hands from between his arms and got a little head to it. But no, I mean, listen, we were better than them by a, by a million miles. Uh, we'd, we'd played them a couple of times that year and beaten them. And, and I think Graham Taylor knew we were better than them. And I think it was one of those days where I think if Watford had got one or two, we'd have got three or four if we needed them. Um, as it was, it just needed uh, Graham and I to get two goals and, and Watford never really threatened us. We, I was never more confident about winning a football match or a final than I was about winning that one. Um, I just thought we had too many good players. I thought we had too much for Watford. I think they thought their final was getting there um, and we didn't. There was no point in getting there if we weren't going to win it. Um, so I, I, never, I never doubted we'd win that one. And, and listen, it's, a, it's another one of those scruffy goals. I don't care because it doesn't say that in the history books. It doesn't say, you know, Watford, Nell Everton to score a sharp, good hit, grey, scruffy goal. It just says sharp and grey. <laughs> Stephen. 
Looking in quite a good cross there. Oh, Andy Gray, and it's given. It came out of Sherwood's hands, and Andy Gray has forced it home to put Everton two into the lead. Uh, well, the um, the recent Rob Sloman film, Howard's Way, is a must-watch for fans of any club, not just Evertonians, uh, because it captures not only how... I agree, by the way. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. It, it captures brilliantly not not only how exhilarating that team was uh, in 84-85 especially, but it's a fascinating snapshot of life on Merseyside in the 80s with all the socio-economic yeah. issues that dogged the place. Um, did all that stuff give you extra incentive to be successful for the Everton fans? Well, a little bit. I mean, coming from Glasgow, I, I, when I arrived at, at, at Merseyside, I, I really thought there was a there was a connection, you know, Glasgow on a, on a famous river. Shipyards were a huge part. Unions were a huge part. Go to Merseyside, famous river. Shipyards were a massive part of, of their history and, and unions were. As, and, and it was like the common folk. It was like, I thought, apart from the accent, I could have been back in Glasgow. You know, humour was massive in Glasgow, as it was in, in Merseyside. So there was a lot of similarities to where I'd grown up in Merseyside. So I settled in there really well, loved the people, um, especially Evertonians, of course, and, and, and had two brilliant years there. So, but I, I think what inspired us more than everything was the, the desperation of the fans to finally see their team after such a long time being up there not only on a par with Liverpool, but ahead of them. And, and I think that drove a lot of the guys on, yes, to give the Evertonians that feeling of not just parity with their, with their uh, neighbours, but, you know, almost like for a few years, yeah, we're as good and sometimes better than you. So that, that, that was important. Yeah, that was yeah. important. Well, you won the league the European Cup Winners' Cup in 85 and narrowly missed the treble, losing the FA Cup final to Norman Whiteside and Manchester United. Um, yet that summer, Howard decided to bring some fella called Gary Lineker to Everton, which effectively brought your time to an end there, just as you established yourself as a terrorist hero. Now, in Howard's way, I think it's very evident and very touching to see how choked up you get when you're telling the story of your departure from the club. Yeah, well, it, it was that. I get choked up talking about it now. Um, because it was, um, it was unexpected. You know, when you've, when you've just won the league and when you've just been part of history in Europe, when you've just gone close to completing an amazing treble, the last thing you think as you settle down for a summer is you're going to be replaced. Now, I didn't have a problem with that because teams have to move on. Um, and I was coming up 30. And, and I knew that you know, at, I might not play every game. So, you know, when Howard arrived at, the whole, at my house and started talking about this, that and the other, I was, it was, it was, I was really disappointed. I mean, I, in hindsight, I should have stayed. I reacted far too quickly. Uh, I made a rash decision. And because I was annoyed and because I was disappointed uh, and I was hurt in a lot of ways. So I made a, a, a rash decision because the players were still the same. The lads I'd grown, had those two years with were still there. So I should have stayed and been part of it for the next couple of years. But because I was angry and disappointed and upset, all those emotions that you shouldn't make decisions on, big decisions on, I made a big decision on. 
And I think part of the reason as well, because it was Aston Villa and the attraction to go back somewhere where I had been, mm. that again was a mistake and something I wouldn't do again. I wouldn't, have re- I wouldn't repeat it. Uh, so it was, it, was a, it was a tough time that summer, really tough time. Um, but, you know, do I forgive Howard? Absolutely. Love him <laughs> me bits. And, uh, you know, he was, he was amazing, amazing man. So it was tough. That was a tough. That was a tough summer. Yeah. That was a tough summer. Now, um, what was the most memorable match you played in? Because in these interviews, you've chosen the 1974 Scottish Cup final, which Dundee United lost to Celtic. Um, you've also chosen the game. For- <laughs> I put a game we lost. Yeah, I know. And then you've chosen a, a Villa game against QPR, which was a two-two draw. And then mm-hmm. also you've chosen Everton's one-nil FA Cup semi-final win over Southampton in 1984. Mm-hmm. Now, if you reflect back again now. Uh, would you still choose any of them, or is no. there another one? Is there another one you have in mind? And I suspect I know which one you might go for here. Go on then. Has to be Bayern Munich. Yeah, yeah. It's a no-brainer. Yeah. Um, I think anyone who played in it, any Evertonian, uh, any of the boys, I would. I can't think of any of them that would pick another game. I really can't. Uh, it was an, an incredible night, the likes of which, oh, had I sampled before? No. Had I, had, did I sample since? No. It was, we were taking on the cream of Europe. You know, we were kind of rag-ass rovers, you know, a bunch of young kids trying to make names for themselves and, and two old has-beens, really, me and Reedy, trying to patch up our latter parts of our career. And we took on the might of... Germany and Europe, huge side with some unbelievable players, riddled with internationals. And we, we gave Everton fans a night. And I mean, that, I think there was 55,000 there. And I think 50,000 of them, if they were honest, and they would be, would say that's the best game they've ever been at. I really believe that. That's how iconic a night it was for, for the club. And having gone one down at half time, it was stuff dreams are made of. In fact, if, if I'm not mistaken, somebody should make a movie at that time at Everton because it was quite a it was quite a time. Yeah, it might might be quite good to watch that. Yeah, 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 that's for sure. Uh, well, I think anyone listening is well aware what happened to you once you hung up your boots. So instead of talking about your part in in the revolution of in football coverage and analysis in in Britain uh, and as in the rest of the world as a direct consequence, I suggest. Um, obviously, first with Sky Sports for around 20 years or so, and now with being Sports. I want to home in on an episode in 1997 when it looked like you were going to turn your back on all of that and step into the precarious world of management when the job at Everton came up. Now, the story goes that you were just about to take the plunge and try to revive things at Goodison, uh, and you had a last-minute change of heart and stayed at Sky. Um, can you tell us what actually happened uh, and, and why you've never stepped into the dugout? Um, well, there was a lot of stories kind of around there that I snubbed Everton and, and, and refused to take the job that I was offered. First and foremost, quite categorically, I was never offered the job at Everton, mm-hmm. um, ever. I did meet the chairman, Peter Johnson, and a couple of the board up at his foods factory. And when I left home that day, I said to my my partner, I think I'll be coming back as manager of Everton. So I left home thinking that. Mm. I 
met them for three hours, four hours, sat, talked about the club and if they appointed me, what would I, what would it be like? What would I do? What would I want to do? That's that and the other, just everything in general. And because they hadn't had a coach for, I think, two months, I think Dave Watson had been in temporary control. Is that right? Yeah. yeah I think I he had. So, yeah, so I, I, was, I was taken aback a little when uh, Peter went, okay, well, thanks, Andy. We've got another two or three people we want to talk to. And I went, oh, okay then. And I went back home, went on holiday, heard nothing, came back. Sky had obviously heard rumours, called me in and said, we don't want you to go anywhere. And if, if, if you do decide to go, we'll make life really difficult for you. Um, but we want you to stay and we want you to sign a new contract and carry on doing what you're doing. Um, and I, I did. I did. And then, subsequently, three or four days later, Peter Johnson, I think to save himself from criticism, uh, deflected the blame onto me and said I'd turned Everton down when I, I never had. Mm. It would have been a really tough decision in hindsight because having let me go home, there were a lot of other factors I would have had to have taken into, into mind. But I, I can honestly say hand on heart that if he had offered me the job the day I went to meet him, because my heart was just ruling my head that day, I would have taken it. Um, but in the subsequent 10 days, fortnight that passed, there were one or two things that happened and I decided to stay at Sky without turning down any offer from Peter Johnson of a contract to take over as manager of Everton. So I think there, was ever, there were a lot of Evertonians believe, Peter, that I'd turned the club down, but I didn't. I didn't, uh, I didn't get an offer of a job and I eventually I just decided to stay where I was um, and I think I've always said since then it was the right club but it was the wrong time mm. and I think with the wrong chairman and, and I think that was subsequently proven uh, with the troubles that they had really and then the, up until David Moyes era uh, it was a tough struggle for the likes of Howard going back in and Walter Smith mm. taking over that was tough um, so I, I think when David got hold of it it was in a much better place with a much better chairman who was an Evertonian through and through and, and gave David the support and everything that he needed. And that was the right thing then. But no, no, I, I, I didn't turn it down. No. Yeah. So what would 1980s you think of you now? And how do you look back at yourself in the 1970s and 80s? What would 1970s now think of me? Yeah. As an old man. <laughs> it would look at me and think, I hope. He would look at me and think, you did okay. You know, for someone who wasn't uh, <clears throat> the most gifted footballer by any stretch of the imagination, you achieved a lot. You set out as a kid to win things. You did. You set out as a kid to represent your country. You did. You set out as a kid to score for your country. You did. To score in cup finals, you did. To win titles, you did in Scotland and England. So... I hope the 1970s Andy would think, yeah, you did all right, son. And then you, you forged another career um, on television as a broadcaster, an analyst. So, yeah, I think you did all right, kid. And if, if, if the 1970s Andy was looking forward and thinking, 
that's the career I'm going to have. I hope we'd be happy with that. Yeah. Well, we're going to crank up the time machine and we're going to give you one chance to go back and have a word with yourself in the 70s and 80s. What one piece of advice would you give him? It's a tough one. It's a tough one. What piece of advice would I give myself back in the 80s? Don't leave Everton. <laughs> Thought you would say that. Don't leave Everton. The rest was, was history. It's how, how it should be. And they were, they were decisions I made with a clear head prior and after. But the Everton one was a decision I made without a clear head. So I definitely would have stayed and I would have been part of it for another couple of years, I would like to think. So that would be the one thing I would, I would tell myself. Yeah. Well, Andy, I could probe you about these, uh, these old interviews all day long, but uh, our time is at an end. Um, and I've got to say, it's been an absolute pleasure to, to speak to you and interview one of my own childhood football heroes. So uh, thanks for everything. Thanks for everything you did to make a young Evertonian happy in the 80s and, of course, for sparing, <laughs> some, of your, for sparing some of your valuable time to chat, me, chat with me today about these old interviews. Really appreciate it. Pleasure, Mark. Anytime, son. Thanks for listening to What Happened to You. You can find us across all the main podcast platforms, so please don't forget to subscribe. For updates about future guests and new episodes, follow us on Twitter at WHTYPod. For extra content related to what happened to you, including the original interviews that inspired this episode, visit our friends The Set Pieces at www.thesetpieces.com and follow them on Twitter at The Set Pieces. We'll be back again soon, so until next time, goodbye.